Namaste and good evening to all of you. Let's talk tonight more about Jesus and about the teachings, what, what yogic things we understand from the words and actions of one like Jesus. And Jesus, when explaining, last time I was saying, he explained some amazing cosmic laws. This is like Jesus is not telling things about how to do the Sarvangasana. But Jesus is very good at explaining the relationship of the individual with the universe. The cosmic laws of life and death and love and everything. <clears throat> and he uses parables and analogies and he uses a lot of instruments. And uh, those things guide us in yoga as well. No? So, last time I talked about the parable of the sower, I finished that, and there was then the parable of the lamp, the comparison with the lamp on a stand. And I remind you, because we have continuity here, where Jesus says, there, were, like, there was a time when Jesus spoke and had some amazing line of parables, examples, and things like this, and then in the parable of the lamp, he said, no one lights a lamp and hides it in a jar or puts it under a bed. Where he explained, he has explained that even enlightenment is a divine plan. It's based on a divine necessity. It comes with the approval of God. There is a, an economy of spirituality. And in Kali Yuga, for example, when there are fewer people practicing spirituality then the plan is more difficult to meet. For example, in Tibet, according to historians and anthropologists, there have been times when Tibetans were like one-third of the Tibetan population lived in monasteries. One-third. No, like... I remember there was a statistic in Romania and there were like 11,000 or 15,000 monks and nuns in Christian monasteries and the European Union thought it was too much like Romania had the highest percentage in the European Union of people but it was 11,000 out of 20 millions that means not even one in a thousand if it was one in a thousand there would have been 20,000 but there were like 11,000 it's less than one in a thousand and in Tibet it was one in three one in three, can you imagine the percentage? But then when it's one in three, then there are other laws, like there is an inflation. In Kali Yuga, when there is one in a million, then Shambhala says, well, let's help this one in a million, because this one in a million, they need to be there. And then some people practice less yoga, like I can almost bet that none of you in this room will practice as much yoga as Milarepa did practice in his life. And still, if you reach a state of Samadhi, it's going to be the same state of Samadhi which Milarepa reached. And it sounds very unfair. But again, it's because in Kali Yuga, the conditions are completely different. And the Divine Consciousness needs you to step forward and to help other people spiritually and to be like a lamp. God needs to light a lot of lamps right now. 
because humanity is suffering a lot and it's in the darkness. And thus, Jesus is telling us something about the intimate ways in which the cosmic consciousness functions in its relationship with the world. And <clears throat> he says the lamp is openly put on a stand like the spiritual truth is shown. The Tibetans had another metaphor for this. They called it the lion's roar. They said when you reach the spiritual truth, you feel like you want to climb on the roof of your house and roar like a lion. Say, people of my city, here is the truth. No, like my lamp has not been lit for nothing. I light my lamp, I became enlightened, I saw the truth, and then I'm hiding under the bed. No, that's not why the divine consciousness gave me that awakening. So that awakening was given so that it can be used for something, not only for myself, but for the whole planet Earth. Because I'm not only alone, my effort can be personal, but my involvement with this world is still part of a system. So something is collective. We have a collective subconscious mind. We share something with the collectivity, even when we hate it, but we still share something with the collectivity. And thus, Jesus says exactly by this principle, he extends it and says there is nothing hidden which will not be disclosed, nothing concealed that will not be known or brought into the open. Like, spiritual reality shines through itself. And then, he says, consider carefully how you listen by the way of the parable of the sower, because, and then he concludes with something which is related but extending again, and that's where we stopped last time, with this statement which is not at all Marxistic, it's not at all democratic, in which he says, whoever does not have, even what he thinks he has, will be taken from him, and whoever has, will be given more. Like, you are 80% as good as Milarepa. And then Shambhala gives you the other 20% because they need one Milarepa now, this century, right now. And the rest is given. And you say, but I didn't deserve it. Yeah, sure, say thank you and keep on, keep going. You know. So whoever has is given more because how many people are contending to become the next spiritual teachers? A number like you, right now in Agama, for example, the numbers are small, by the way. No? How many people contend and say, I am going for Nirvana, I am going to be one of the Buddhas of the 21st century. In the 21st century, there will be 10 Buddhas and I am going to be one of them. Not because egoistically, I because I want to serve. Because I am also having aspiration and longing. Because of a natural growing process, I will be there. No? And then... Whoever has shall be given more. Okay, you have aspiration. Everybody seems to be crazy about artificial intelligence, you know. I've got many of my people like, Swamiji, what do you think about artificial intelligence? Like, are you kidding me? You know, is that what's itching your ass? Have you been standing on your head three hours per day? Have you been doing 16 hours of meditation non-stop? You know, is your problem artificial intelligence if we are going to be fucked in the ass by the robots or not? One day, is that your problem? The problem is that you have to save your soul and to become one with Shiva. You know, that's your problem. Not what's going on. Maybe some idiot will press the red button and start a nuclear war. 
and then in five years we'll give 100,000 people surviving on earth. We are seven billions and a half, 99% will die like rabbits, will die like bunnies, you know. And then there will be 100,000 survivors. Aren't you worried about that? That the doomsday is coming? That the Kali Yuga is finishing? That the Satya Yuga might be starting? Is that your problem? Your problem is that by the time Satya Yuga starts, you should be in Nirvikalpa Samadhi. You should be enlightened. You should have reached Patanjali's goals. That's your problem. No? Take care of yourself. And then if in the process you say, but what if somebody asks me, what have you done to be so special? Then I say, okay, you want to be my disciple? I can teach you what I have done to do this. You know? I can, I can go there. So I'm not saying that we should be indifferent to the rest of the world because we cannot. But the problem is, no, the problem is that who has the aspiration to do something, to actually do something, first for themselves, because I'm curious, I'm hungry, I'm thirsty, I am dissatisfied with life. I, if I live my life like this, I can as well commit suicide, for God's sake, you know. It's like I want something meaningful. I want great love. I want great knowledge. I want freedom. I want all the amazing things, you know. And I cannot live for some bourgeois, tiny things, you know, that people say, yeah, you worked and finally you got yourself a house and you got yourself a car and you got yourself a piece of land and, yeah, you know, it's like, that's why I live, I can as well die now, why should I continue this charade, you know, uh, you could become a great expert in IT, yeah, fuck IT, you know, it's like, why do I want to be a great expert in IT, you know, if I'm the next Bill Gates and I invent an operating system or something, will that make me great? No, it actually does. There are people who say that Bill Gates is the devil, is 666 the Satan or something. You know, there are all sorts of conspiracy theory crazy idiots, you know. So that's why I'm saying, you know, it's like, what is the meaning of life? So that's why Jesus is correct. He says, whoever has shall be given more if they long for it. But be there. You have to be there. You have to knock at the door of God. And they say, hey, I know I'm not worthy. I'm not as worthy as Milarepa. Who can compare with a guy who did yoga non-stop for 30-40 years in Tibetan mountains? Who can compare with that? None of you have started your life like that. And none of you has any perspective of doing that. And therefore... I know I'm not going to do as much yoga as Milarepa. But still, Samadhi and the unity, I am Brahman, I am the cosmic consciousness, it's the same for me and Milarepa. It's absolutely the same. And I'm going to get it even if I do less yoga than Milarepa. Why? Because Milarepa was born in a time where people were religious fanatics and there were plenty of them. And I was born in a communist country with atheist government and school and parents and society. And I found my way to God. I don't even know how. I can't even understand how that miracle happened. That I, my soul, has found its way to longing and aspiration and spirituality. And that's why I know I don't do as much yoga as Milarepa did. But I am in a completely different century 
and in completely different circumstances and that's why the referential is completely different and that's why Jesus stops with this paradoxical law which seems very undemocratic like the people who don't have they should receive what they don't have no God is not Karl Marx and Karl Marx is not God fortunately thank God for that you know God is thinking in another way God thinks the ones who have they shall be topped over and the ones who don't have their cannon fodder and they will disappear in the midst of history. Sounds very terrible. Sounds right-wing politics, you know. Sounds like the libertarianism of Ayn Rand or something like this. You know? Sounds very tough. But on the other hand, you know, the cosmic consciousness doesn't need to play any superficial games. So, Jesus is in a tough mode, you know, he simply says there is a meaning, nobody lights a lamp, all the truth shall be known, your heart shall be known, express your heart, if you have, you shall be helped, there will be some addition to you, you know, it's just enough that you want, that you have some aspiration, especially in a time like Kali Yuga, and even Jesus was born in a time of Kali Yuga, because he came and spoke all these wonderful things, and all they could do was kill him, assassinate him. That's how he was rewarded for telling this great truth. And thus, um, he is very strong in this. And then, here is an episode which shows something amazing. And now, he doesn't speak, but something is coming up. Now, Jesus' mother and brothers came to see him, but they were not able to get near him because of the crowd. Jesus' mother. You all know who that is. That's a person to whom we pray today. We pray to the Virgin. Whole millions, billions of people maybe pray to Virgin Mary. So great she is. So great she has become. And in that time she was just Jesus' mother. She was a Jewish woman whose only outstanding aspect was that she gave birth to this incredible dude called Jesus and people were scratching their head and saying whoa you know this is his mother but I mean she's not walking on water she's not okay there was the story with the immaculate conception but apparently that was a quite private thing it was not known very much in the time of Jesus that people are going and saying look that's the mother of Jesus and actually she gave birth to him without a sperm cell without a man you know it's like People didn't know much about this. So there was not much bewilderment or wonder about that. Sorry for this, I'm a bit dry tonight. So back to our story. Jesus' mother, who today is a great person, like the whole humanity must have heard about Virgin Mary, and brothers... Here is a very difficult thing because the ancient text used the word brothers. But if Jesus had brothers, it means that after Mary was a virgin and gave birth to Jesus, then Joseph, the father of Jesus, came to Mary and said, Dear, enough with this immaculate conception shit. Let's have some sex. I need some pussy. And therefore... You know, it's like, okay, you've done your stunt with the uh, Immaculate Conception. 
And now it's time for some family life. And then after Jesus, Mary had another one, two, at least two children, because it says brothers, plural. And uh, they were normal people. They were just people born out of the coitus which she had with Joseph. That uh, for theologians, that destroys the purity image of Virgin Mary very much. They don't like to hear that. So there is a huge speculation until today in the world of theology that if Mary had other children after Jesus, if Jesus had younger brothers or not. I personally, coming from the liberal world of Tantra, where sex is a very fun and light thing, um, I don't uh, care too much about this thing, and for me it would not destroy my veneration and my love for Virgin Mary if I hear that after she gave birth to Jesus, she had a normal family life for another 10 years or something. It's, it could be expected. Of course, Christian theologians, both in the Catholic Church and in the Orthodox Church, they are adamant that Mary never had sex, neither before Jesus nor after, she just had this one episode with Jesus which was not with sex. And even after Jesus she didn't have sex. She didn't mate with Joseph. And therefore these brothers, is uh, when they researched the Greek words used and how they might have been translated from Aramaic and ancient Jewish language, that these brothers, it's a word which actually in English would mean siblings. And siblings means cousins and others. So it was Mary with a few second-degree relatives of Jesus, not really brothers. Like, Jesus never had brothers, but he had siblings. I don't feel the need to focus much in my yogic analysis of this. If we could say that Virgin Mary never had sex, fine, she was a total celibate, like... Paramahamsa Yogananda is supposed to have been a total celibate. Uh, other great yogis have been declared total celibates. Like they grew up in an ashram, they never had sex, they became great yogis, they are not practicing sexual tantra, they practiced ascetic brahmacharya, therefore they were celibate both before starting yoga and after they started yoga. And therefore, like it is presumed that Yogananda died a virgin. He never had sex. So if Yogananda died as a virgin, why not Virgin Mary? Especially when she had such an overwhelming experience with bringing to the world a thing like Jesus. And therefore, it's okay. I can easily believe both of them. And all this back and forth of some people who try to throw rotten tomatoes at Virgin Mary. No, no, she fucked. She had a few children. Okay, if it makes you feel happy. Yes, she had sex. She had a family life. She had another three children. She still is Virgin Mary, the one who gave birth to God, to Jesus. And therefore, we still venerate her. So the fact that you are trying to smear her reputation with this is pathetic doesn't really serve any purpose. Like, what purpose does it serve? With children, with further children or without further children, she's still the great Virgin Mary. And when she died, somewhere 
south of the old city in Jerusalem, there is a valley there where there is the church where she, the Dormition, the church of Dormition, in that church she died and like Jesus she dematerialized. She did the rainbow body, not because she knew yoga, but because God was on her and sucked her into the light. And there is no skeleton or tomb of the Virgin Mary. There is a skeleton and a tomb of Peter and Paul. Like it's not wrong to have a skeleton left behind you and a tomb. But Jesus didn't leave one behind, obviously. And guess what? Neither did Virgin Mary. So if she fucked and had 23 children after Jesus, still she dematerialized and went into the light. So all this argument trying to smear the reputation of Virgin Mary is complete stupidity. It's a complete stupidity by some people who are just wicked-minded and they would like to, you know, about Jesus, because if they don't like this, the story of Jesus, they say, oh, Virgin Mary was betrothed to Joseph, but she was a whore even before she was married, and she fucked with Roman soldiers. And that's why Jesus came out without Joseph having sex with her, because she had it from a Roman soldier, and that's why Jesus had chestnut hair and blue eyes, because it was actually a Germanic soldier fighting in the Roman army who was displaced to Jerusalem, and there he fucked some Jewish girl called Mary. No, This is not a beautiful faith. This is something which is just trying to smear the reputation of the Virgin Mary. So when you look at her, you cannot feel Vishuddha and Anahata and purity and uh, supreme, a sort of uh, extremely beautiful manifestation of femininity and motherhood and all that. You just want to choose some very nagging bad idea to just smear her and say she was like me. She had a pussy, she fucked, she was even unfaithful as a girl. La, 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 la. Okay, are you satisfied with all that? You can flush the toilet in your head, you know, your, your brain is full of shit. That's the only thing which it shows, that you like to think very bad things and very dirty things and very guilty things. So, coming back. Jesus' mother and brothers, they came to see him. As I told you, Israel is a very small country even today. Just 50, 60, 100 kilometers here, there. If your brother or son is walking on water and raising the dead, of course it will get back to your village. They, they were probably living in Nazareth. If they were living in Nazareth, Nazareth, whatever the Jews pronounce it today, <clears throat> of course they heard in Nazareth. Did you hear about Jesus? And then she'll say, yeah, by the way, he's my son. You know, it's like, sure, I heard about it. And then hearing, hearing, of course they would go in three years while Jesus was going. Of course they would go from time to time and say, hey, how are you? you know, we are hearing the most wild things in our village about you. you know, like what's happening here? But they were not able to get near him because of the crowd. This is very clear. Because how were the people who were close to him able to get near him? Because they really wanted. When they saw Jesus, it's like their soul was scorched. 
Jesus, 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 oh, I want, you know, and they came close, they pushed, they elbowed, they do, they did whatever they did, and they were there sucking the words of Jesus, drinking the words of Jesus. His mother and brothers, whatever they were, they were not that pushy. They came, but they were like, oh, uh, we are uh, the mother of that guy, you know. So why don't you go to him? Uh, just push together with everybody like this. No? That's the attitude. Please pay attention. Because I've seen it before. Yeah? I've seen it with my own family, if you want, in a pre pre preserving the proportions. I've seen it, you know. So this, this story tells us something about the relationship of the spiritual people with their family which are never brilliant, never really good. <laughs> they came and they pretended they can't get near him, because believe me, if they really would have wanted, they would have simply shouted and said, hey, make place, make place, I'm the mother of Jesus. Please, man, and everybody would have stepped a little bit aside, even if it was a crowd, you know, if she insisted and said, I'm the mother of Jesus, I need to see him. And then go give him a hug and say, son, how are you? I haven't seen you for a hundred years, you know. What's happening, you know, like here, great things about you. She was not like that. I've seen families of great yogis. I've seen the family of one of my gurus. Like, I don't want to talk about myself. I've seen families of my friends. They were embarrassed with their children. They thought that their children were like, you know, my child is keeping a lecture to a thousand people talking about God. You know, it's like, I'm almost ashamed to say that I'm his mother or father. No? This is how people are when you are spiritual. They don't, uh, you know, suddenly, oh yeah, it's me. You know, I made that guy. He was in my belly for nine months, you know. And No. Contrary. That's why I say there is here between the lines a very weird story. Because it's repeated in other gospels and both from the side of the family and from the side of Jesus, you don't find the warmest feelings that there are. It's ridiculous when I look at them, because I just saw a speech by the Pope. He visited my native country a few days ago. You know, And I, I'm seeing all these religious people. And they always go like this, you know, like, uh, don't live a wild libertine life. Don't be homosexuals. Don't do, don't take drugs. Don't do. And what's the best thing? Family. Family. All the great religious people, Buddhist or Christian or Muslim or whatever, they preach family. But the funny thing is that Rumi does not care about his family. Milarepa does not care. His mother made him do black magic and then he had to do 30 years of yoga to delete the negative karma created by his own mother's advice. The, his mother was the devil. His mother was an arrogant woman who felt so much grudge and need for revenge and so much violence that she made her son fuck his life. If his son wouldn't have done the teachings of Guru Marpa, he would have gone to hell from the advice of his mother. So the mother of Milarepa was probably an arrogant Asian bitch. You know? So, what did Milarepa have to do with his mother after he took the big initiations? And Nothing. Nothing. He didn't visit his family or something. He just visited when he was enlightened after 30 years. He passed through the village 
and he found that his mother had died. Auf Wiedersehen. Hallelujah. You know, that's what he could tell to his mother. Now, of course, in the subtle world he had saved her soul. He did yoga for her so that she did not have all that negative karma. So the mother of Milarepa didn't go to hell, but not because she was a nice person. Because Milarepa did yoga for her. And eventually Milarepa discovered his sister who had become a beggar and a sort of a prostitute. And Milarepa took her to do yoga. He said, look, did you fuck your life enough? Like his sister must have been 40 years old or something, you know. He was absent 30 years and she was 10 years old when he left from home. So she must have been 40. And Milarepa took her, taught her yoga, apparently had sex with her, had tantric sex with her, initiated her in sexual tantra and practiced with her, and eventually she became an enlightened woman, like saved her ass as well. But because she was alive, she could interfere with her in another way. So I'm telling you all these things to understand that most of the spiritual people in the last 2,000 years of known history, they did not interact with their family. Like, for example, Yogananda speaks nicely about his mother. And then he didn't see her for 40 years. And one day we find out she died. Hey, why wasn't Yogananda living in his village, attending to the needs of his mom? Because his mom was an ignorant person who said, uh, you should get married. You should have... And Yogananda said, yeah, yeah, bye-bye, mom. You don't understand shit about what I am or what I'm trying to do in this world. You just live in the world of your ignorance and you are giving... You love me, but you give me totally stupid advice. You know, I cannot listen to you because you are not fit to give me proper advice. No? The same goes on and on. You know, Ramakrishna's mother, when she was told your son is doing too much yoga... She said, take him to the red light district and get a hooker to suck his dick because the poor man is not having sex and his sperm is getting altered and goes to his brain, you know, and he should just have some sex and then he will feel okay. That was the spiritual latitude of the mother of Ramakrishna. That's how she, much she understood from what Ramakrishna was doing. So this story with the mother of Jesus is peculiar because Jesus was some incredibly big guy. The mother of Ramana Maharishi discovered him after 20 years. He had run away from home at the age of 17. And she came and begged and made scenes and hysterical scenes. And she cried and she on in front of him, come back home. What are you doing? Are you crazy, Ramana? That's what she understood from the life and the mission of Ramana Maharishi. And Ramana Maharishi stood there like a sadist. He was sitting cross-legged. And his mom was touching his legs and said, Ramana, please come home. Your brother, I'm alone. I have no money. Take care of me. It broke his heart. The bitch broke his heart. But he couldn't drop his spiritual mission just to attend to the needs of a ignorant Indian woman. He couldn't do that. It would have been the most stupid thing in the world. And therefore the family most often does not understand you, does not participate into what you do. Sometimes I met a few families where it did happen. There is a story of a Tibetan Lama 
merit intellect in the book, in the biographical book, The Four Lamas of Dolpo, where his father, he asks from his father, like Buddha, let me go, let me do practice. And his father says, no, I want you to marry and to have children. I want grandchildren. And eventually he manages to convince his father. And he goes and takes teaching. He comes to a course like this. And then he wants to go on to a retreat and practice like crazy. And his father said, if you just uh, did not get married and, you know, screwed it all, and now you just spend money and time to learn yoga or whatever, and now you are not going to sit down and practice for 10 years what you have learned, then it was all without any effect. You wasted time and energy. Like his own father told him, now if you wanted yoga, now do some yoga. I will give you money and food. You go on that mountain and practice. Very seldom I heard a father or a mother telling to their children, go, go out of this world, go to nirvana. Die standing on your head and using mantras, you know, like go for it, you know. Very seldom. They usually always try to pull you back. Please remember, even in the family of Jesus, there was a bit of a reticence. There was a bit of an awkwardness because this guy was a weirdo. Of course, he was doing extraordinary things, but also he was not cutting them any slack. And someone in the crowd then told to Jesus, your mother and brothers are standing outside wanting to see you. It's exactly like some of you will come now and will say, uh, Swamiji, we know you have a satsang and it's recorded for people across the world, but your mother and brothers want to have a word with you. Like question number one, why the fuck can't they wait until 11 o'clock? Because they know I'm on a program. It's like if I, if I would be on television, having a televised show, they would not do this shit. They would respect the fact that I'm working on television. In a certain way, I am on television right now. They would not have shame about that. Because a, a, a host on a television show is a respectable person who fits with the society, and an idiot like Swami Vivekananda Sarasvati is a weirdo that should get spanked by his mom for being a naughty boy because he is living a completely imbecilic life and maybe his mom can make him come back to his senses and live a normal life because people should live a normal life, not be crazy hippies doing meditation or something like this. Same thing was there. So the question one, number one, why couldn't they wait? Question number two, why couldn't they come in? Why do you need to tell me that my mother and my brothers are... Why don't they come and sit right there so I can see them? And then maybe I will tell you, dear friends, can you please excuse me tonight and we finish earlier because look, my mom and my brothers, cousins, whatever, they came to visit me and I haven't seen them for a year and a half. And I would like to take dinner with them or something. Everybody would understand. But this scene tells you between the lines that there was a tension. That things were not nice. Because in a nice situation, this is how things would have been done. And somebody had to tell him. No, they are like sulking out there. They are like, mm, you know, they have uh, oblique faces. And says, see, your mother and brother are standing outside wanting to see you. 
And Jesus replied, this episode is mentioned in several Gospels and there are enlightening details there as well. Jesus replied saying, my mother and brothers are those who hear God's word and put it into practice. He slammed them badly. He said, I had no mother, no brothers. You are my mother and my brothers. You are my family. With you, I want to spend the time. Not with my family, who wants me to stop in the middle of a satsang and go and pay attention to them because their ego is very important. They could as well wait humbly <coughs> and saying, we know you have an important mission. We came at an inappropriate hour. We can wait for two hours. And then when you take lunch, we come and take lunch with you and we speak and we give each other a hug and so on. So this was an arrogant way of coming. <clears throat> it was, it showed, it says everything about the fact that they were not acting nicely. They were not happy about Jesus and consequently Jesus was not happy about them as well. And Jesus said, what mother? What brothers? I don't care about the, my biological mother and brothers. I care about the people who listen to the word of God. Then why does the church today tell you so much bullshit about family, listen to your parents, have a good family life, when actually the people who are in the family life, they are the most tamasic people. They are the ones who don't practice spirituality. They are the ones who are caught in this foik security of Muladhara and Zvadistana, thinking that family life gives you security, and it gives you... It doesn't. It's a fake security, and that's why the yogis were told in Geranda Samhita, Geranda tells to his disciple, go in a foreign country, and there build your heart. Like, don't be with the family, don't be with the people from your country. Go in some other place, and there do yoga, because there you cannot be influenced by people. People will come and say, hey, remember, I'm your friend. I have no friends. My friend is Milarepa. My second friend is called Rumi. My third friend is called Ramakrishna. These are my friends. If you want to be my friend, be like Milarepa and like Rumi. No, that's with whom I want to make friends. You want to just say, won't you come and have a beer with me? Yeah, I actually don't drink beer. Maybe they can have a non-alcoholic beer, because I would like... Huh? I'm going there and pretending I'm happy. Here is Walter. He has been my schoolmate in high school. No, and I'm sitting there and internally I'm drumming my fingers because I'm just waiting for Walter to finish his shit and go home, you know. And I played like I was a good boy. I played nice. I stayed one hour and a half with Walter and I said, oh yeah, and how is Mary, by the way? I haven't seen, like I don't give a shit how the Mary, how Mary is. I'm not talking about the great Mary. I'm talking about Mary, some hypothetical colleague from high school. You know, it is Laleshvari, the Kashmirian poetess, who says, if I die, what is it to you? Like, do you know that yesterday some great yogini died in Kashmir or in India or in Romania or God knows where? Do you know? You don't know. You don't care that some great person have died. And if you die, he said, she said, then what is it to me? Like we live in parallel worlds. I live in a world where I care about my guru and about Shiva. And you live in a world where you care about your car, house, career, 
money, children, and so on, and you don't care about my life, and guess what? I also don't care about your life. No? Like, why am I obliged to play nice, to pretend that, oh, and how is your family, by the way? You know? Well, there was somebody in the school, there was a guy, he was in the administration of he got married, he got kids, and then after one year he was sulky and he told me, you didn't even ask me about my children. I was ashamed to tell him, I don't care about your children, they don't care about me, I don't care about your children as well. I don't know them, I didn't make them, they are just like other citizens from the face of this earth, like there are a billion people in Africa, I don't know any one of them, and I don't care about them more than compassionately, like Buddha, like they are part of humanity, and if they are part of humanity, they are part of God's plan, and they are part of God's consciousness, they must have some meaning, but I don't know them. And when one of them comes and steals my shoes, I'm even a little bit annoyed by them, and it's very difficult to love my enemies, you know. I'm practicing the discipline of Jesus, love your enemies and pray for those who do you harm, <clears throat> because honestly, I don't know those people, and I don't give a rat's ass. No? And it's like, why am I supposed to pretend that I care when I don't care? And Jesus tells them, guys, I care about you. We are family. Because we are sharing the things of daily life. We are sharing the things. And I'm talking to you about God. And you are wanting to reach. And to make friends with that God. That's the connection between us. If somebody is coming and saying. Your family is out there. Yeah. I will tell them. When I finish the satsang. If I'm not too tired. I will speak with them. You know. I will not interrupt anything to just go and speak with them. But see, there is thing. If they would come and sit there, I would interrupt and say five minutes, let me give you a hug. I would do it because of their behavior of being open-minded and humble. But the mother and brothers of Jesus were not. They came like uh, princes and they said, uh, please can you tell to Jesus that we wait for him here? Like, why don't you go to him? Something was not kosher there. And that thing is very clear. And he replied, My mother and brothers are those who hear God's word and put it into practice. Which means those are not. No? He didn't say, My mother and brothers also hear the words of God and they put it into practice and I love them very much. But apparently they were not. He said, You are the ones who want to listen to the word of God. Therefore, you are my mother and brothers. That's why, please remember, this is a cosmic law. Family is not welcome in spirituality. In my life, once in a year, I have seen a family where everybody was practicing. A mother, father, daughter, son, daughter-in-law, something. They all came to yoga. I've seen this. But in most of the cases, in 999 other cases, the family was against the person practicing yoga. With me, it started first time when I proclaimed I want to be a vegetarian. When I became a vegetarian, 
my family declared me an outcast. How idiotic and fanatic do you have to be not to eat pork? We all love pork. And now you idiot don't want to eat pork? Yes, I want to be different from you and from your lives. I want to do something else with my... That's offensive. It's in the face. Like people hate that when you do that. Even with Agama, when we had this scandal last year, how many people didn't write posts where they said, we hate you because you are holier than us and we drink and take drugs and you speak bad about drinking and you speak bad about drugs and we live in this island and we feel dirty and you pretend you are some saint. We hate you. Go fuck yourselves. You Agama, Agami people disappear, eat shit. It was all a reaction of the demonic, of the dark, you know, in front of people who practice some virtue. <clears throat> when you had the communist revolution in Spain, that famous Guernica at the time of Pablo Picasso and so on, you know, Pablo Picasso was left-wing and he spoke for the communists and against those. But you know what was happening? Did you read the history of Spain? People, the Marxists of Spain, they were breaking into monasteries and they raped all the nuns and then they split their belly and took out their bowels and they crucified them on the cross in the altar. And it happened with hundreds and thousands of men and women. This is not about communism. This is about Satanism. Communism is Satanism. That's why you know, you know, the tree is known by the fruits. People say, no, no, Karl Marx was a nice person. And by the way, the European Union worships Karl Marx. They even raised a new statue of him in Luxembourg or wherever, in Belgium, wherever he was born, someplace. No, it's neo-Marxism that happens today in Europe. But Marxism is Satanism, is not just another philosophy. Because not only in Spain... I can tell you what happened in Russia, in Romania, and in any other place where the communists came to power. First of all, they fucked the religious people agonizingly, diabolically, ugly beyond measure, indescribably bad. This shows that Marxism is not about economy and about democracy. It shows that it's about destroying something which you hate very much and that something is spiritual people and spirituality. That's why it's normal that Agama is hated by all the demonic people around. That's where that hate comes from. It doesn't come from them. It comes from dark forces which push them Karl Marx said, every time when I hear church bells ringing in my town, it's like a dark fog is descending over my eyes and I feel that I want to scream and kill somebody. This is the description of a man possessed by a demon. And the trigger was the bells. When he heard bells which should make you think about Jesus, he was thinking about darkness and killing. This is what it is. So it's nothing new under the face of the earth. And that's why Jesus here is right. The spiritual people group themselves with spiritual people. And 
the world is not friendly to it. People were practicing a mild Christianity in the 5th century in Alexandria or Cairo. And then a guy went to the desert to push it full on. That was called Athanasius. I told you about him. He had dug a grave. He was living in his own grave out in the desert from the pyramids further, much further out. And somebody came and told him because people heard and some were tickled, but some were pushed by the devil. So some hated him. Why is he doing that? Because by doing that, he makes us look bad. He is doing 50, 100 times more than what we do. And therefore, we look like lazy and negligent. And that makes me hate him. Instead of making me say, wow, I admire him, you know. I can't do what he does, but at least maybe he does some of it for me. Maybe he prays for my soul. Instead of being humble, the thing is to envy and hate him. And somebody came to Athanasius and he said, Athanasius, in Alexandria, the whole world is, is disagreeing with you. No, like the whole world is against you. Like, why do you do these practices? And Athanasius looked at him and said, go and tell them that I also disagree with them. You know, like Milarepa is on one hand and the world is on the other hand. Please understand this. Jesus says it very clearly. He calls the Satan, he calls Satan the devil, the prince of this world. The prince of this world is not God. This world is in Kali Yuga and 90% of what is happening is the devil all day long. From the American government to whoever, it's the devil, the devil, the devil, the devil playing the game. And you are surprised that Ramakrishna disagrees with the world. And you are surprised that Milarepa disagrees to the world. And you are surprised that John the Baptist goes and says, Repent! Make straight the ways of God! Of course they disagree with the world. Because they can see that the world is in darkness. And now and then one soul is escaping and trying to make something heroic and to become uh, a beacon of light. And that's why it's not only the family. The family is the symbol of the world. And the family and the world are trying to hold you back. Again, exception made of a few cases. I have never seen in my life cases where the family or the world would encourage you. Liberal governments would come and say, Are you doing yoga? Do you want to become like Buddha? Oh my God, here is a thousand dollars per month for you. So you don't have to go and work for Volkswagen. So you stay in your house and you do headstand and meditation. And we hope that when you reach some wisdom, you write a book or you share it with the whole world. No, we want to support you. That's what the world would do. When the king of Kashmir had not a sage in Kashmir, then he sent his emissaries and they found out that there was one in Uttar Pradesh or in Madhya Pradesh, whatever, one of the Pradeshes, Andhra Pradesh. <coughs> and he sent them and he said, the king of Kashmir is offering you house and money if you come to live in Kashmir. Please be the sage of Kashmir. Because a kingdom cannot have one enlightened being there. We need to have an enlightened being in our kingdom. A saint. No, That's how they thought in Kashmir in the 10th century. They don't think like that in Switzerland nowadays. No, Why? Because it's a different world. 
different forces are running the show. If you know today in Thailand at least they support them. They say these guys from the temple they try to meditate. Maybe one of them is becoming the next Buddha or Buddha Dasa or whatever, you know, and Ajahn Tong or something like this. And then we give them food. Every morning we give them food, clothes, donations, so that they can sit on their big asses in that monastery and meditate, 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 practice, practice, practice. That's a society. That's why the Thai society, from a spiritual standpoint, is much more advanced than the Austrian society. The Austrian society would never give you money to encourage you to practice meditation. So that's what I'm talking about. This is why. So the world and the family are not a spiritual environment. On the contrary, they try to keep you in Muladhara and Zvadistana. When people have a trauma of something, either with their husband, partner, even with Agama, they say, I go to my mother. Yeah, congratulations. I hope your mother is Virgin Mary, because otherwise your mother is probably a real stupid idiot who will fill up your brain with, like, uh, dear daughter, yeah, you see, I told you don't go to yoga. It's going to hurt. And those people are really tough. Yeah, mommy, uh, dear daughter, girl, come home, dear. We'll find a suitable husband for you, you know? Like, that's what the mother is trying to tell you. Fall back in Muladhara and Zvadistana and rely on the safety network of the society and family. We'll find the food, a job, a husband, then have quickly two, three children. You know, this is what the society is. So, it's funny. Christianity and so many religions, they decayed so much that they preach family. But none of the great saints... Barbara, Saint Barbara, she was murdered by her own father because she loved Jesus too much and she didn't want to marry with anybody. And then her own father, who was a manipuristic, arrogant idiot, he assassinated her. He assassinated her because she would not surrender to his paternal authority and she would not stop loving this idiotic Jesus. So what's the merit of the family? The family is ready to shoot you in the head. It's not supporting you. Extremely seldom. You must have an enlightened family that will support you in your spirituality. Thus, here is a very deep meaning. It's a very deep meaning. You can't really mix family with spirituality. My first yoga guru even told me that his knowledge, his perception was that Shambhala was against this thing of putting family and spiritual lineages together. And she showed me a lot of examples where people in China, Tibet, India, they tried to keep yoga and whatever they were teaching as a family business, like some sort of Kung Fu master who teaches only his eldest son or something like this. And that it never worked spiritually. And in the cases where it worked, it became something manipuristic, materialistic, and egoistic. It never worked spiritually. Because spirituality, you shouldn't keep it just for the members of your family. That makes it an egoistic circle, like we are aristocrats and we know some spirituality, and the others don't. I was watching a documentary last night about Inayat Khan, some Sufi master from India, and where they tried exactly the same shit after he died. Everybody is, I'm the cousin, I'm the uncle, I'm the son, I'm... Oh, it's like 
Nobody could reach a bigger Samadhi than his son, his uncle and his cousin, you know. They were like predestined to reach Samadhi. But if there was somebody else who had a huge aspiration and said, I, I want God with all my heart. Ah, yeah, but you are not cousin. You are not from the family. This is shit. It's ugly shit. And therefore, I have been informed since early life, look carefully because the family is usually your biggest obstacles and opposition and your things are not going to be in the family. There are yogis who even didn't know this law probably and uh, they tried to break it. Like for example, Marpa was married, one of the biggest gurus of Tibetan tradition. He was married and he had a son and he naturally... Being a bit Chinese, you know, the Tibetans hate to say that they are Chinese, but they are a bit Chinese when you study the history of, the, of Asia. You see that Tibet has always been influenced a lot by China. <clears throat> From furniture and clothes to, you know, like the Chinese when they wanted to show they are rich and they don't need to do manual work, they let their nails grow. Even men had very long nails. And this means I never need to wash the dishes because when you wash the dishes, you cannot do it with long nails. I have servants who are washing my dishes. So it was a, it's the same in Tibet. In Tibet, when they wanted to show that they are rich, they didn't, well, they didn't cut their nails, you know. And so, so it's like there's a lot of Chinese culture mixed with the Tibetan culture as much as they try to say it's not true. So now back to the story. I, I disagree with the Chinese invasion of Tibet, but uh, there are lies on both sides of the fence. And uh, saying this, in Tibet, Guru Marpa tried to do some Chinese business, like leave the Kargyutpa, the red-head lama, one of the strongest yogic and Buddhist traditions of Tibet, to leave it to his son. It didn't work. Shiva or Kali or Shambhala or somebody... Vajradhara, just to take a Buddha name, up there, they simply said, give a lesson to this guy. As big as a guru as he is, clap him over the head and show him what an idiot he is. And his, his son died at the age of 20 something. His son died. And then Guru Marpa, with all his carefully made plans, he had to give the lineage of the Kargyutpa to Milarepa. So it went from Marpa to Milarepa, not to the son of Marpa, as he would have liked to have it. Because he had a little bit of egoism. Into it. He was trying to transform Buddhism in a, in a family story. And it's not a family story, and it's not meant to be a family story. And the family brings a lot of disturbing influences. Look in Islam. In Islam, after Muhammad, they were supposed to come his cousin, his uncle, his this, his this... And they killed them all. They killed each other like rabbits. For the first 30 years, they killed each other like crazy. And some Muslims are waiting for Ali, the son, the whatever, the cousin, whoever he was. I don't know enough Muslim history for that. And the others are waiting for somebody else. And they call themselves Sunni Muslims and Shia Muslims. Simply because they follow the different relative of Muhammad as lineage holders. It doesn't work. It's not spiritual. Morihei Ueshiba was followed by his son. His son is a tenth of what Morihei Ueshiba was. He never became as big and as great. Where are the sons of Albert Einstein? What did they do? Where are the sons of Mahatma Gandhi? 
What did they do? Where are the sons of Leo Tolstoy or of Alexandre Dumas and so on? Where are they? Very, 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 very seldom some of them did a little bit of something. And that's why in spirituality, this is also true. The gift of God, this charisma, this grace does not go with the family. In the case of Jesus, it went to his mother because she created him physically. But not like, you know, there was people say, maybe there was a daughter of Jesus which who went to Spain. Yeah, I would be very pleased if there was a daughter of Jesus. Question is, how stupid was she? What did she do remarkable in this world? Nothing. It's a complete... Even if there was a daughter of Jesus... I don't want to hear anything about her because she meant nothing. Jesus was Jesus, and if he had a daughter, so what? Saint Barbara, Saint uh, Teresa of Avila, Saint, there were much bigger women than this woman, this daughter of Jesus, if she ever existed. This daughter of Jesus was not even this much compared with Teresa of Avila. So then why do I care that she had the DNA of Jesus and of Mary? What's so big about that? So, here there is this materialistic thing that the son of a great man must have a special blood, blue blood, and is himself a special person. I totally disbelieve in that, not in that way. So, he replied, my mother and brother are those who hear God's word and put it into practice. My disciples, no? those are my mother and sons. You know? For the rest, so eliminate from your minds this fake connection with family and so on. In spirituality, it 99.9% .9 of the time means nothing. This thing with the mother, it's a totally different story. Both in Indian and Tibetan yoga, they say that if a person reaches a formidable level of enlightenment, that enlightenment will backfire on the parents, especially on the mother, because the mother is biologically closer. And therefore, there was something special about the mother of Ramakrishna, the mother of Buddha, the mother of Ramana Maharishi, the mother of you name it, and yes, the mother of Jesus. Because they became enlightened, the mother of Milarepa and the Mayano, because they became enlightened. When a woman gives birth to a child who becomes the next Buddha, that woman is enlightened because of the Karma Yoga which she did. So there is a backfire on the mother, and if the enlightened person is very strong, then it goes to the father. Like in the case of Jesus, his father is also a saint, Joseph, Saint Joseph. Guess what? In the case of Jesus, the grandparents of Jesus are also saints. The fathers of Mary, Anna and whatever, Joachim, Joachim and Anna, they are also saints in the calendar. Like Jesus enlightened even his grandparents. Okay, not everybody is as big as Jesus. Right? So in this way, there is a backfire on the family. But paradoxically, Mary was not entirely supportive and admirative of the efforts of her son. On the contrary, said, uh, please go tell to Jesus to come up here to speak with us. Really? Really? How important do you think you are? No? This was, you can see it 
immediately, as I said. So, in the time left, let's continue with one more event from Jesus. I hope I imprinted this clearly on you. Family and spirituality, 99.9% .9 of the time, they don't go well together. Take, if you have any illusion about this, forget about it. Not in Kali Yuga. Maybe it was working for the Rishis in Satya Yuga or something. In Kali Yuga, it's not like that. One day, so we are not in the same day. Now the story jumps. There was a long thing I commented for the last five satsangs. A whole list which seems to be there. And then in the end of it, there is the story with now Jesus' mother and brothers came to see him. We don't know if it was in the same event or uh, some days after or something. So, but now we jump. We take a deep breath. We finish this story. And the story of Jesus continues by saying one day, so it's another time. Jesus said to his disciples, let's go over to the other side of the lake. This is the Galilee Sea. It's a lake on the Jordan River. It's a lake which is north of the Dead Sea. Israel is separated by a seismic fault between from the rest of Asia. And uh, this seismic fault has created two lakes. One of them which is called the Sea of Galilee, north, and one of them which is called the Dead Sea, south. And this they were around this lake. They, they were in the eastern part of Israel, which today would be bordering to uh, Jordan and Syria. And Jesus said to his disciples, let's go over to the other side of the lake. Why? Well, that's what God tells me to do. You know, it's like I have the instinct. Let's go and preach on the other side. So they got into a boat and set out. As they sailed, he fell asleep, which is symbolic. You know, like God is not present. Of course, one like Jesus obviously had lucid dreaming and everything, conscious sleep. But the story doesn't, doesn't go there because they, Jesus did not teach the yoga of lucid dreaming or something like this. So it's not part of them. Whatever Jesus was, it was him because it was special. But the fact that he fell asleep, it's like, you know, he was uh, apparently absent. They were in a world without God. A squall came down on the lake so that the boat was being swamped and they were in great danger. The Sea of Galilee is not big. It's just a large lake. A storm on a lake cannot be really, 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 really bad. But of course you are in Israel, in Palestine, and it's desert climate. And the desert climate can have very violent storms and winds for short periods of time. So a very violent storm can produce unpleasant phenomena. And actually these ones are called in the Navy, in the maritime, maritime science, they are called squalls. There is even this movie called White Squall, in case you have seen it, where some boys encounter this somewhere in the Caribbean. Okay, Caribbean is the ocean and there can be huge storms. But on the Sea of Galilee, I've seen the Sea of Galilee. You can see the other shore, you know. It's like it's a few kilometers wide. How big of a storm can... Because the waves don't have place to become huge. Like you'll never have huge waves like in the Australian coral reef where the surfers go to surf on waves which are 25 meters big or stuff like this. There will never be anything like this in a small lake 
like the Lake of Galilee. So it must have been a storm in a cup of tea. But still, these squalls can be dangerous. And these people were sweet water fishermen, you know. They were not ocean sailors like the Vikings of Denmark or Norway. These were just uh, used with some very poor boats sailing 300 meters up and down, trying to catch fish in the Sea of Galilee. So they were not prepared. And then they were in danger. Indeed. And the disciples went and woke him saying, Master, Master, we are going to drown. As we know from the history, all these disciples of Jesus, they were some cowardly Jews, you know. They were not some heroes of any kind. They were cowardly. When Jesus was arrested, they ran like partridges in all directions. So, they said, we are drowning. You know, Jesus was like, you know, you wake me up for a fucking squall. You know, it's like, how, how much do you try? You are with me. Do you think that while I'm sleeping in this boat, this boat will ever capsize and will drown? And you'll say, oops, Jesus was not so much divine as we thought, because look, we just drowned together with him. No, like people could have said, hey, we are with Jesus, nothing can happen. Squall, you, squall, fuck you. You know, it's like we are with Jesus in the boat. You know, we are with God, nothing can happen to us. But obviously their faith was also very shallow. He got up and rebuked the wind and the raging waters. The storm subsided and all was calm. Where is your faith? He asked his disciples. That was the faith. Like you are with me. And you are afraid you are going to drown because I am sleeping? Like, it's not very deep what you think about me. But the impressive scene is before, which we don't see usually in movies about Jesus. Nobody wants to stage that scene. He rebuked the wind and the raging water. It's like there is a storm and I go, ho, 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 crazy wind. Calm down, you idiot. He rebuked the wind. This shows who he was, you know. Like there are yogis who have paranormal powers. You saw that Milarepa could produce a storm and kill people with it and so on. You know, like there were great yogis who could produce, master the elements of nature. But Jesus rebuked the wind and the raging waters. He rebuked, he talked them like they were persons. Like he controlled the elements of the universe so well that for him they were like persons. Who did this? Francis of Assisi. Francis of Assisi said, Brother Fire, you are good, beautiful, useful. Pray, don't burn me. He was talking to the fire as the fire was a person. So obviously he was talking to Agni. To the god of fire. This is Tantra or Shamanism that you personify the forces of nature. So there is no ocean. There is Poseidon, Neptune, the god of the ocean. And everything which the ocean does is controlled by Poseidon. There is, in India, there is the god of the ocean. It's not the god of the ocean. It's the god of the water element, Varuna. So if the ocean misbehaves and you are like Jesus, you say, Varuna, put a cap on it. And Varuna says, Namaste. 
Namaste, Om Nama Jizu. You know, it's like the boss said, put a cap on it. Okay, okay, sorry, sorry. I just kidding. You know, it's like you know, I don't even know why a storm started in your presence. You know, because it shouldn't have. So Jesus rebuked the wind and the raging waters. This shows. This shows it. You know, it's like yeah. I can pray to God and say, may the water be favorable to me. But Jesus just rebuked them. He said, wind, ho, water, put a cap on it. You are scaring my disciples. Of course you are going to be cynical and say, yeah, but in in Israel, this squall is coming. It's 30 seconds before Jesus was up. It's over. It was just a quick rush. It was like a tornado. Comes, goes. Ah, okay. And so Jesus didn't calm it. It just calmed by itself. You can be, of course, when you deal with Jesus and you see how many things he did, it's too much that all of them were coincidences. But even his attitude, when they told him the wind is doing something crazy, he didn't come up and say, okay, okay, don't worry, I'll work on Anahata. And control the wind. Wind, 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 wind. No, he would just behave like God. He behaved like the master of nature. He scolded them. He rebuked them. He stood up and he said, Wind, what the fuck is this? Water, calm down. And they listened instantaneously, which shows that he was the master of the elements. He was the master of nature. And indeed that Jesus was something divine. They said... They say in mythology, they say that uh, Abhinava Gupta had power over the elements. He had power over the five elements. Sure. We know that Shankaracharya was drinking one time molten iron. He drank liquid iron. Red hot like, you know. And he didn't get burned. So he that's control over the elements. You know, the fire doesn't burn you. Nothing, you know. So we know that some yogis could control the five elements to a level which was inconceivable. But at the same time, remember that the attitude of Jesus is very, very big in this way. And uh, you understand. So, And then after he rebuked the elements, he rebuked the disciples. He said, why are you afraid? You are with me, you know, like, do you think that the storm can just come and drown me? And you say, oops, Jesus would have become a great man, but unfortunately he drowned in a boat one day. That doesn't happen. Not with God, not with Shambhala, not with Jesus. It can't happen. There is a providence. So he said, what is your faith? In fear and amazement, that's people's reaction, you know, not love. Fear and amazement. They asked one another, Who is this man? He commands even the winds and the water, and they obey him. Of course, that's the whole point. The whole scene, it was almost like necessary. You can say that almost Jesus wanted it to happen this way, so that we can read about it 2,000 years later. Like, look who this guy was. They woke him up and he said, Whoa, crazy storm. And it did in five seconds, you know, like.
there is no much common to do. Remember the equivalent in yoga is controlling the elements of nature. The yogis say very clearly, if your Svadhisthana chakra is perfectly controlled, you will never drown. The water element cannot kill you or drown you. Because you are friends with Varuna and you are friends with Vishnu and you are friends with the water element. And the, Can you get shot? Yes. No. There are metaphysicians even made an analysis of the Second World War. Hitler decided to finally go on some war. And France, England were superpowers in those days. Hitler fucked them in no time. And they analyzed. His, he was a, Hitler was a Taurus with an Arius ascendant. Earth and fire. And they say the power of the German army on earth and on fire, the fire power, and as well the earth movement, they were colossal. But Hitler, when fighting with Britain, he was not able to defeat Britain on water and in the air. So his Vadistana and Anahata was not as strong as his Muladhara and Manipura. The German soul had a certain power over earth and fire. But the British were stronger on water and air. And they won the Battle of England with aircraft. And they won the, the maritime battle with submarines and convoys and all this. They didn't lose. Hitler did not manage to beat them in water and in air. See how deep this philosophy of the elements is. It talks about everything. Everything is about elements. Of course, for Jesus, Jesus controlled all the elements because he was divine consciousness. So, the people simply said, you know, they were amazed, but we can suspect that exactly as Jesus raised dead people and did demonstrative things, this is also more or less a demonstration. Like we can even presume if he knew that a storm would come and pretended to fall asleep or actually made himself fall asleep. And then he knowing that people will panic and that he will show his characteristics once more. So here is another different story where Jesus is suddenly the master of nature. Please understand it. There is no more limit. If Jesus could stop the storms and this, then what could he do? If somebody would have told him, can God take the earth a little bit closer to the sun so the climate becomes a bit warmer, you know, just take the earth, you know, 100,000 kilometers closer to the sun on a smaller orbit, closer to Venus orbit, because we want to have a more warm climate and no more ice ages. Jesus could have done like this and it would have happened. Anything is possible at this level. If you can raise a dead man from the grave, from his coffin. And if you can stop the storms and say, ho, oh, and it stops, then where is the limit? There is no limit. This is the yogic power taken to a limit which very few people have reached. Occasionally we heard about Milarepa and a few others doing gigant, gigantesque, gigantic things like this like this Ethiopian saint who moved the mountain. 
by mistake, by mistake, he moved the mountain. Like, oh, oops, stop, 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 stop. You know, I didn't want to move that mountain. No? So, yes, we have heard about other people doing crazy stuff. But with Jesus, it definitely is in the first category. It's in the supreme category. Because Jesus goes and he acts like master of the universe, like master of nature in all the ways. And all the time you have the feeling that he actually holds his hand like people are too small for what he could do and be. That he could do way bigger things, but then people would be terrified, scared. People were afraid because they saw him stopping a storm. No, but then, psst, like, no, what is this? So, this episode is very eloquent in its own way. I'm not going to go to the next stage right now. I would prefer to stop a little bit early today. Also because we are not completely filming this due to the logistic things here. But also because the next subject is also a bit long. And if I start, I will stop in 15 minutes and then it will not be enough. So let's just draw the conclusions for the little that we have done today with Jesus revealing cosmic principles, understanding this story with the relationship with the family, and then talking about the episode of controlling the forces of nature and whatever was related to that. With this, thank you for joining tonight. Thank you all for this. See you in the next activities here in Agama, whatever you need to study and learn.